Hello and good morning. It is still morning, right? Yes. It is, uh, it's great to be with you here. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to open up God's Word uh, for you. And what a wonderful opportunity we have to be able to study our God and to consider His attributes and His actions for us. Uh, as, uh, as Al said, I am Pastor Jonathan Morsch. Uh, I am church planting down in uh, Capistrano Beach. That's in South Orange County, and we are at Trinity Presbyterian Church. And uh, I also want to thank you also for your prayers. I know that uh, many, if not all of you, have been praying for us for the past uh, just about four years. Uh, we're, that's how old our church is. And So without further ado, <clears throat> let's go ahead and begin our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time and opportunity that we have uh, to be able to open up your word and consider what your word teaches us about you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, and most importantly, you have revealed yourself to us through the person and work of Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and the freedom that we have uh, to be able to do this, and we ask for your blessing upon this time. Uh, Help us to learn and grow in our faith and knowledge and understanding of you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the topic that uh, we're going to discuss for the next 30, 40 minutes or so is the topic of God's immutability. God's immutability. Now I have, I should have there in your outline, a definition. Immutability is the doctrine or the attribute of God that he cannot and does not change. This is what we confess in the shorter catechism of question four when we say that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Now again, this is uh, one of the attributes of God that is rightly considered one of his incommunicable attributes. That is, one of the attributes that he alone possesses and he does not share with us, his creatures. And that should become immediately obvious to us as human beings because, I don't know about you, but it seems that as a human being, we are constantly changing. Right? You, you've changed even from uh, the time that I started this lecture to, the, to where you are at now. For better or for worse, we as humans are constantly changing. And so it's really hard for us, just it's important for us to mention at the start, that when we're talking about God's immutability, it's not going to become immediately obvious exactly what that's like. As a matter of fact, it is impossible for us to know exactly what that is like. But nevertheless, we want to understand uh, how, it is, uh, how God has revealed himself to us. And with most of the incommunicable attributes, uh, we define this by way of negation. In other words, when we say that God is immutable, we're, t- we're saying uh, something that God is not. We're saying that God does not change. We're actually not even necessarily positing any positive thing. We're saying that God does not change. So we're defining it by way of negation. And immutability is really just a logical extension of God's perfection. You can't improve perfection. Right? As soon as you change something that's perfect, you've either made it not perfect, or if you've perfected it, it wasn't perfect to begin with. Does that make sense? So if God is perfect, he doesn't need to change. Uh, you cannot perfect perfection. And so even though we call ourselves human beings... In one sense, we are technically human becomings, right? Only God is a being. 
Only God is who he is, and he doesn't change. But for us, like I said before, for better or for worse, we're constantly changing. So we are technically human becomings, and God is really the only one who is. He is a being. Now, I I talk about how immutability makes sense logically, right? If God is perfect, then he doesn't need to change. Therefore, he doesn't change. And, but we also need to be aware of a danger of coming up with ideals based upon logic or reasoning and therefore making God the ultimate realization of that ideal. This happened uh, during Paul's day. During the, uh, in the ancient world, there was a group of philosophers known as the Stoics. Perhaps you've heard of them. We read of Paul uh, uh, preaching before Stoic philosophers in Acts Acts, uh, chapter 17. And the Stoics were really just the ancient world's version of the British. All right. Here, here. Keep a stiff upper lip. All right. The Stoics did not like emotional roller coasters. They didn't like the vicissitudes of the human experience, where one day you're feeling great, and the next day you're feeling horrible. They didn't like how things in the, in the world around us affect us. Okay? And so their whole philosophical ideal is to become unmoved, to remain unchanged. And don't let the vicissitudes of life, the good or the ill, affect you. Don't let your emotions control you, but rather be controlled by reason, right? And so that was the Stoic philosophy. That's that's how they thought they could achieve the good in life. And so therefore, if that's their ideal, remain unchanged, then what do you think their notion of God was? Well, of course, God was the most unchanged. God was the most unaffected, uh, literally apathetic, He wasn't moved by anything that happened in the world. And so that's how the Stoics thought of their God. One that is unmoved, one that does not change, and therefore, basically, it was a projection of their idea. Now, in recent days, uh, say in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, uh, there have been Christians, even people within evangelical circles, who have attacked the doctrine of the immutability of God. And they have, they have made accusations that people who hold to the traditional belief that God cannot and does not change, they say that we are being influenced by Greek philosophy. We're not being influenced by the scriptures, but by, rather by this whole idea of Greek philosophy. And I mentioned the Stoics as an example of that. And they, they have a reason, or at least an, an emotional reason, for wanting to deny the immutability of God. Because if you think about it, what would it be like to have a relationship with somebody who doesn't change? Now, I see some of you ladies saying, are you kidding me? Have you met my husband? <laughs> he hasn't changed, right? No, but literally, really, if somebody doesn't change, that's the whole point of a relationship is a give and take, right? You, you grow with a person, and as you change, and as you uh, relate to that person, the, pers- the person relates back to you, and therefore you grow in your relationship, and the both of you change, okay? Uh, if, if you don't, if, if you're trying to have a relationship with somebody who doesn't change, it'd be like having a relationship with a computer, where you have this, this uh, constant response. It's always going to be responding to you, 
right? Now, of course, with this, it's been really fascinating to see the development of artificial intelligence. Many of us talk to our phones, right? Our phones are named Surrey. And we ask Surrey questions, and we try to throw Surrey curveballs and, and you know, tell Surrey jokes or ask Surrey to tell us a joke. And we're amused by this, right? That our, we have this sort of artificial intelligence. And, and, but as computer programmers work on this, what are they trying to master? What are they trying to redupli- or duplicate is the idea that they can change, that a computer can, can respond to you and change and not just give the, the same response over and over and over again. Okay, so we need to understand at least the tension here that uh, are, are being voiced from both within cr- Christian circles and without Christian circles is if we want to believe that God doesn't change then how on earth can he have a real, meaningful, dynamic relationship with us, his creatures, who do change? Okay, so that's, that's the tension that I want us to at least uh, appreciate as we move on. And so, uh, perhaps the most important question to ask is, well, what do the scriptures teach? Right? The Greek philosophers said one thing, we have people saying other things today. What do the scriptures teach? And at first glance, those people who deny the doctrine of immutability seem to have at least a leg to stand on. Because when we look at scriptures, at first glance, it seems, that, it seems like the Bible teaches that God does change. I think, think of the major events that are described in scripture. Creation. Think of the incarnation. Jesus becoming a man. Think of uh, the, the spirit being sent at Pentecost. With all of those major events, it seems like there is a before and an after, right? There was, there was a time before God created, and then there was a time after God created. There was a time before the Son became incarnate, and then there was a time that he was born of the Virgin, right? There, there was a time before the Spirit was sent to the church, and then there was a time after the Spirit was sent. Then even within the particular stories and narratives that we read of in Scripture, we read of instances where God is repenting, relenting, responding, and interacting with the humans. And we'll, we'll look at uh, one of those uh, situations uh, later in, in the lecture. But at first glance, at least, we need to appreciate that Scripture seems to indicate, at least on a certain level, that God does change. He repents, relents, responds, and he does these major acts. I think it's important for us to understand, before we go on to talk about what immutability does mean, we need to understand what we don't mean by that. And I have that in your lecture there, what we mean and what we don't mean. And I think this quote by Charles Hodge is great, written approximately 150 years ago. Charles Hodge says this, Theologians are apt to confound immutability with immobility. In denying that God can change, they seem to deny that he can act. Okay, so we, we often are tempted to think of immutability as immobility. Like God is somehow like a, a marble statue that doesn't move. In denying that God can change, we seem to deny that God can act. But that's clearly the danger we want to avoid. Okay? That is, that is what we don't mean by immutability. We are not, not denying that God can act. On the contrary, traditionally, God has been defined as pure act. 
pure act, uh, uh, actus purus for you Latin scholars. In other words, God is always in action. He is all of his attributes all of the time. Don't think of God as, as this immovable, static, motionless thing, but rather think of him as an active, uh, frenetic, energetic God. And I think this makes even more sense when we remember the fact that God is triune, right? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is an extroverted community for all eternity past and into all eternity in the future. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in a loving, active relationship. The the Greek fathers used this term perichoresis. Uh, The the root word there is the same root word we get, choreography. Literally, perichoresis was used to describe uh, the interrelations of the Trinity, and it literally means dancing around. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in this active, loving relationship from all eternity. And so that, I think that's, that's a helpful idea. When we remember that God is triune, it makes more sense for us to see that he is pure act. And, uh, and, and that's how he's always been, and that's how he always will be. God has always been this way, and it, he is the ever-acting God, and he is the creator of our ever-changing world. And so as Pastor Gorel just uh, highlighted for us, his His own self-existence is the basis upon which we are created. Okay, so God as pure act sets the the basis for us as his image bearers uh, to act. And and he, God, as this extroverted community, the one God in three persons, invites us to enter into that relationship. So the Lord is free to enter into real dynamic relationships with his creation, and yet, as Scripture warns us or tells us, he remains unchanged. And Scripture, whenever it teaches us of God's immutability, it teaches us that that is actually a good thing. I have a list of uh, verses uh, here uh, in your outline. Uh, Exodus 3.14 is a great place to start. Uh, God saying to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Uh, this, uh, this is something I'm sure that was already touched upon, but of course God saying I am, revealing himself as the great I am, is important. He, he's not saying I, I am the I was, I'm the has been, or he's not saying I'm the I will be, but he's saying I am. He doesn't need to change, Okay. Speaking of his uh, immutable nature there, at least that's part of the things we can appreciate with the I am statement there. Numbers uh, 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. 
here contrasting the heavens, which seem like they're pretty old, but when compared to God, and, and they, they seem like they don't change, but when compared to God, uh, they, the psalmist says, they will perish, they will change, but you will remain the same. Uh, which, by the way, the author to the Hebrews quotes this passage and applies it to our Lord Jesus Christ. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I mentioned how the immutability of God is a good thing for God's people. It's good that the Lord doesn't wake up uh, one morning and have a bad day. <laughs> or just all of a sudden decide, you know what? I've had enough of these people. I'm, I'm, I'm going to change my ways with them. Uh, th- th- that's the point here in Malachi. I don't change, therefore, O Israel, you are not consumed. It's a good thing that God remains unchanged. And then, and then finally, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ this is a fascinating verse, says the author to the Hebrews uses the, the human name of our Lord and Savior, the name that the angel Gabriel told Joseph and Mary to name the son born, uh, using the human name and, and applying his a divine attribute. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, so, so there's a list of verses where we, if we had all the time in the world, we could go through every single one of those. But I think it's, it's safe to say that Scripture is, is clear that God, in his nature, remains unchanged. But what are we to do? I mentioned verses that seem to indicate that God does change, where it indicates that he relents, that he uh, repents, that he uh, re- reacts, responds to people. And then these other verses that seem to indicate that he doesn't change. I think our temptation uh, in, in the world that we are, live in today, our temptation is to get those verses and to maybe get two columns and to put in one column all the verses that seem to indicate that God does change and then verses in another column that seem to indicate that he doesn't change and compare and contrast. Maybe see how, you know, if there's more verses on the one than on the other, then we'll decide whether God's immutable or not. Well, that's not the way we want to do things, right? We believe that all of this is God's word. Um, maybe this is something that you yourself have encountered if you've ever talked with somebody about this doctrine or perhaps some other doctrine. I, I think often um, you know, in, in debates that we have, we as Calvinists have with Arminians, right? You, you want to quote all those great verses that indicate that God is sovereign in his grace. Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Right? And then the Arminian comes back with all the verses that seem to indicate that we have a free will, right? And you're just talking past each other by throwing these various verses. That's, that's not how we use God's word, right? We don't pit God's word against it, uh, one verse against the other. It's all of God's word, and it doesn't contradict. And so we need a, maybe a, a few ground rules, set a few ground rules here to, to enable us to properly understand exactly how it is that God reveals himself to us in his word. And I think we need to first and foremost distinguish between how God, is, how God is in himself and the way in which he has revealed himself to us in his word. Okay, God is, as I'm sure was, was mentioned to you last night, God is 
ultimately incomprehensible. That is, we as finite creatures will never be able to fully understand or fully comprehend exactly how God is in himself. But nevertheless, we believe that God has truly and accurately revealed himself to us in his word. Okay? But he does so, and this is something that Calvin often highlights, he does so in an accommodated way. He accommodates himself to us so that we can understand it. Calvin likened this to the way that a nurse speaks to an infant, right? How, how do we talk to babies? Do we use highfalutin language? Do we throw around technical jargon? No. When we talk to babies, we get up in their face and we say, goo goo gaga, right? Calvin says the way that a nurse lisps to a baby, right? You, you, you talk gibberish to a baby and the baby responds, Right? Well, that's, that's really how it is that God speaks to us. He's using accommodated language so that we can understand. Okay, uh, where do we get this in Scripture? Well, Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There's a contrast here between the secret things, the things that God alone knows, that he's keeping to himself, and the things that he's revealed to us which belong to us and to our children forever. So there is the way that God is in himself and the way that he has revealed himself to us in his word. And he does this, this baby talk, this accommodation, the way in which God reveals himself to us is by way of analogy. Okay, by way of an analogy. What what is an analogy? An analogy is when you say something is like something else. Right? They bear a similarity. It's like this. And that's how God speaks to us in his word. He doesn't speak to us in a univocal way, nor does he speak to us in an equivocal way, but by way of analogy. What do I mean by univocal versus equivocal? Let me give you an example. If I said, say, let's take two guys, Bob and Todd. Okay? If I said that Bob is good and Todd is good, the word good... I I would assume you would take in a univocal sense. That is, when I say Bob is good and Todd is good, you would think that the word good means the same thing when applied to both Bob and Todd. Why? Because they're both men. Right? Now, if I said Bob is good and his dog is good, you would take the word good in an equivocal sense. That is, you would understand that word good to mean something different for Bob than for his dog. Right? What does it mean when we call a dog good? Good dog. Right? Maybe it, it uh, fetched a bone. Right? Maybe it didn't make a mess. Maybe it came when you called it. That's a good dog. But it means something quite different for Bob as a man to be good. Right? We, don't, we don't hail or extol Bob's virtue for fetching a bone. Okay? So you see how that word good can be understood in the same way, univocal, one one voice, versus in equivocal sense. That is, that word, same word, but applied with two different meanings. Well, neither of those are the way in which God speaks to us. Okay? So when God says, I am good, and you're good, 
it's not going to be the same thing. Okay? But it's not complete opposite things either. It's an analogy. Okay? An analogy. And these analogies are reliable. Why? Because God has chosen them. If we came up with analogies, thinking, well, what is God like? Let's think of things like God, uh, think of things that we can compare to God. Those wouldn't be reliable. But since they are revealed in God's word, when God says, I am like a father to you, or I, I bore Israel up on my wings, right? He's using analogies that we as his image bearers can truthfully and reliably understand and believe. Okay, so setting that, setting that stage, uh, doing little hermeneutics out of the way, let's look at a case study. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Knowing that God has revealed himself to us by way of analogy in a truthful and reliable way that we can understand, let's look at this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where we read of the, eject, the rejection of Saul. And we, we won't read the, the whole chapter here, but just have, have it open for you, and I'll, I'll let you know the verses that I read before I read them. And we'll pause and make comments as we go. 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have, an, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So here we see that Saul, who has been chosen by God, to be the first king of Israel, anointed uh, at the Lord's command by the prophet Samuel. Now that he he has been appointed as the first king of Israel, he is now put to the test to see if he would obey the Lord or not. And here's the test. He is given a, a, a charge to totally annihilate the Amalekites. If you want to go back and read uh, the history of this, you can go back to the book of Exodus and see how it was that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they were most vulnerable, coming out of Egypt as they were making their way to Mount Sinai. That's the story where Joseph, uh, uh, the the commander of the army, fought against the Amalekites, and Moses uh, uh, held up his staff. And when he held up the staff, Joseph would prevail. But when he dropped his staff, the Amalekites would prevail. And so you had Aaron and Hur standing at Moses' sides and upholding that staff so that Joshua could defeat the Amalekites. But after that battle, the Lord pronounced a curse upon the Amalekites. And here we find the fulfillment of that curse. The Lord wants Saul, uh, as his chosen vessel, to utterly annihilate the Amalekites. This is total destruction. This is what is known as harem warfare, where they are to be devoted to destruction. And so let's see how Saul does. Verse 7 through 9. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But... Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of 
and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So here we see partial obedience. It's interesting how the narrative goes. It starts off great. Saul defeated them, totally wiped them out. Then you find that word, but. But the good stuff. And the king, he spared. He held on to those things. So Saul obeys, sort of. Well, let's see how the Lord responds. Verses 10 through 12. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Did you guys catch that? Do you hear the words of the Lord when he says, I regret that I have made Saul king? The word here, the Hebrew word for regret, you may be thinking, okay, well, maybe the word doesn't really mean what we think it means. No. It means exactly what it means. The word regret is the common Hebrew word which indicates that one regrets something, that they're sorry they did it, that they, in the old King James, it's translated repent. And why the Lord regrets is clear, right? Saul has made an about face. He's turned from following the Lord. He did not faithfully obey the Lord's commands. That's clear why the Lord regrets, but how he regrets is another story. That's, that's, or that's another question. How, how does the Lord regret when regret seems to indicate a change? We know he doesn't change. Okay, well, let's go on. Uh, verse 11, Samuel was angry and he cried, out, cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be, be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And so Saul is very cheery after the victory, and, and he's, he's being very religious in front of Samuel. Blessed be you to the Lord. And, and he said, he's, he's confident that he obeyed the Lord's commands. And Samuel says, well, then why do I hear sheep? <laughs> why do I hear bah? Right? That, that seems to indicate that you didn't obey. You didn't follow the instructions. And so Saul comes up with an excuse. Well, we were going to offer those things to the Lord. We were going to offer them all the best stuff that we kept. We were going to offer as a sacrifice. And Samuel, in very famous words, beginning in verse 22, says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And uh, Saul seems to indicate some sort of uh, uh, sorrow for what he did, and he begs and pleads with with, uh, Samuel uh, to make things right. And as Samuel turns away from him, Saul grabs his robe. And as Samuel walks away, the, ro- the robe tears. We see this in verse 27. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. 
And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, this is interesting here, because in the very same passage that we read of the Lord saying, I regret, we have this other verse that says that the Lord doesn't regret. Uh, and, and by the way, you find sort of the same thing going on in Numbers 23, the story of Balaam and his donkey, where the Lord uh, sent the angel and told Balaam not to go, and then he let him go, and then Balaam said those famous words, the Lord is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should have regret. So what's happening here? Well, it's important to know uh, what, what uh, Samuel is seeing here when he says uh, that the Lord uh, will not lie or have regret. The reason why, the reason given why the Lord will not lie or have regret is because, why? He's not a man. In other words, he's not like us. He's transcendent. He is above and beyond anything we can think or comprehend. And so here the Lord is warning us and telling us in this passage, writing it in the passage, uh, that I am different than you. I am not like you. So when the Lord says that he does regret making Saul king of Israel, we should not think that the Lord is regretting something in the same way that you or I would regret something. Now, why do we have regret? Often, I would, I would assume, most times that we have regret is because of unintended consequences, unforeseen circumstances, right? We, we make a decision, certain things pan out the way we weren't planning, and then we regret, right? They say hindsight is twenty twenty. We look back upon a situation and think, you know what? Given the chance, I would have made a different decision. I regret what I did. I always find it fascinating in this world today. It's becoming more and more popular for people to say, oh, I have no regrets, Right? I don't regret anything. How foolish is that? I mean, I have, I have regrets even from this morning when I woke up. Right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I regret things all the time. Shouldn't have done that. And the reason why we look back and regret things is because we, didn't, we either didn't know what was going to happen or we weren't properly thinking things through. Right? We weren't properly thinking the, the consequences of our actions, and therefore we experience regret, or we repent of our actions. Now, that is not the case with the Lord. The Lord knows the end from the beginning. The Lord has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Nothing takes him by surprise. He knew that Saul was not going to obey. He wasn't surprised that Saul only partially fulfilled his commands. And so... When the Lord says he regrets something, we need to think and and get it very clear that he's not regretting in the same way. And yet he gives us this analogy. It's like this. You know how you feel when somebody has disappointed you? How you feel when, when they've let you down and you're sorry that you've given them this special job or opportunity? It's kind of like that. That's kind of how the Lord felt but not the same way we experience it. Because why? Because he's not a man. He's the glory of Israel. He's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should have regret. And it's important, I think, also for us to be reminded of this this reminder that we have in this verse where Samuel kind of just throws it out there uh, to Saul. It's tied intimately with what? The declaration that the Lord has taken the kingdom away from Saul and done what? 
given it to his neighbor. Who's better than him? Who's that? David, right? And so this whole process of the Lord rejecting Saul is actually, as we standing back and seeing it uh, from, from the pages of Scripture, we see the Lord's sovereign will at hand. In other words, Saul's rejection results in David's exaltation, right? Saul's sin ultimately will result in our salvation because David will be made king, but more importantly, the son of David will be made king, right? If, if Saul had faithfully obeyed, then David would have never gone on the throne. So here we see the Lord's unchangeable nature being tied to his eternal purpose of granting the kingdom to David and ultimately to David's son, our Lord. And so, having looked at this passage, we, we need to understand how to read it. We do not need to contrast verse 11 with verse 35. We don't need to put them in a scale and balance and say, okay, which verse should we believe? Should we believe the verse that says that the Lord, when the Lord plainly says, I regret? Or should we believe the verse that says he doesn't regret? And by the way, if you're, if you're just talking about pure numbers here, uh, look uh, at verse 35, very last line of the passage. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So if you're talking about sheer numbers here, we've got two verses that says he's regret, he regrets and only one verse that says he doesn't regret. So what do we do here? Well, remember, understand that not only verse 11, but also verse 35 is analogy. It's all analogy. We need to not assume a blatant contradiction. We need to appreciate that all scripture, including the verse that says God is not a man, is analogy. God is saying it's like this. This is baby talk so that we can understand. Okay? So he regrets, but not the way that we regret because he's not a man that he should regret like us. And so in our passage, our passage shows that the Lord has a real, meaningful, and even dynamic relationship with his creatures. And yet he remains unchanged and he accomplishes his eternal purposes. This is a great passage to go to to show that. He's accomplishing his eternal purposes, namely salvation through Jesus Christ, the son of David, in rejecting Saul. But we see that the Lord is, in a sense, emotionally invested in this. It seems like he really does show disappointment when Saul lets him down. And so looking at this passage, you you may be thinking at this point, well, we got about 15 minutes left, and you really haven't explained exactly how it is that the Lord can be immutable and yet uh, have real meaningful dynamic relationships with his creatures. You haven't told me, you haven't explained to me exactly how that works out. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I can't. Right? I, I can't explain that, which, uh, uh, which leads me to this quote by Charles Hodge. This is in his uh, Systematic Theology that I, th- I think is just really great. You think of Charles Hodge as this sort of intellectual uh, giant, this person who could be able to understand very deep concepts, uh, be able to speak very articulately about God. Listen listen to this quote, and I, I, I trust you'll find it edifying. To give up the living and personal God of the Bible and of the heart. Let's pause right there. 
the God of the Bible and of the heart. There's a, there's a Princeton theologian speaking of the God of the heart. To give up the living and personal God of the Bible and of the heart is an awful sacrifice to specious, logical consistency. We believe what we cannot understand. We believe the Bible teaches as facts that God always is, was, and ever will be immutably the same. That all things are ever present to his view, that with him there is neither past nor future, but nevertheless, he is not a stagnant ocean, but an ever-living, ever-thinking, ever-acting, and ever-suiting his action to the exigencies of his creatures and to the accomplishment of his infinitely wise designs. An amazing thing. God is not a stagnant ocean, but an ever-living, ever-thinking, ever-moving a creature suiting, uh, 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 suiting his actions to the exigencies of his creatures and to the accomplishment of his infinitely wise designs. Now, here we get to the part about understanding this. Whether we can harmonize these facts or not is, of ma- is, a, is a matter of minor importance. We are constantly called upon to believe the things that are without being able to tell how they are or even how they can be. So in other words, if if you're having a hard time understanding how these things work out, that's okay. We as Christians, as God's uh, finite image bearers, are called to believe the things that he has revealed uh, to us. And whether we can figure all that out in our heads, that's a matter of minor importance, Charles Hodge says. We'll praise God for his revelation to us in Christ Jesus. We do have, I, I, according to my watch, just under 15 minutes of questions. Does that sound about right? About five minutes of appearance. You go get your kids. Five minutes of questions. Fair enough. Any questions? Yes. Okay, very good question. For those of you who didn't hear, questions about God's emotions and how does that play into God's immutability. Um, I think that, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about, if there's a topic about God's emotions. I, didn't, I don't know if I saw that on there, so I hope I don't, uh, I, I, I wish I could just punt and say, oh, that's for another topic. <laughs> But, uh, but no, I think that is a fair question. Okay. Uh, we confess uh, in, in, the cat, in, in the confession of faith that God is without parts or passions. In other words, God, as he is in himself, uh, is not uh, affected negatively uh, by uh, the things outside of him. Okay? Uh, that's, that's a classic Christian doctrine. Uh, and, and we also confess that God does not change. 
But nevertheless, he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so there's, there is a sense where we need to appreciate that even those emotions, when it speaks of God being angry or God being merciful or God being gracious, and when it seems to indicate that he changes, we need to understand that it's not God that's changing. It's us. Uh, we need to understand that God, even when he expresses these alleged emotions, that even that is an analogy. Okay? So, you know, Psalm 103, in, in the same way that a father has compassion upon a child, so the father has compassion on, on you. Right? There's an analogy. Uh, in, in the same way that we read of, for example, in Exodus uh, 31, when the Israelites uh, made the golden calf, God responds But remember, we need to understand that God is all of his attributes all of the time. We don't have that option. We're either angry or we're happy. We're sad or we're joyful. Uh, We we, we can't experience all of our attributes or all of our emotions all at the same time. So I think there, too, we need to understand that there's truthfulness. Uh, It is, in a certain sense, God really is angry. uh, But God is also loving and uh, he, is, he can be that way for us because we're in Christ Jesus. So even his love and grace he has for us, he's perfectly just. He's the just and the justifier. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but i just kind of setting out ground rules there. Okay, one more. Okay, good, uh, good question. So... Yes, oh yeah. I'm sorry. We have a lot of very hot, tired children out there, and I'm afraid if you wait until the adults start pouring out, who knows where they end up. So if you yes. have a child who was three through eight years old, please. Grab your kids. As a father has compassion upon his children, show that compassion. Okay. So the question, just very briefly, uh, is uh, what, what exactly did I mean by univocal versus equivocal? Okay, univocal means exactly like this. Okay? Equivocal means nothing like this. And analogical means something like this. So when, God's, so when God says, I regret, we shouldn't think of it in univocal sense. That is, he regrets in the same exact way that we regret. We shouldn't do that. Neither should we say, well, he, his regretting is nothing absolutely nothing like our regret. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even regret at all. We need to understand for what it is. It's an analogy. It's kind of like this. Does that make sense? Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to spending time with you today and our evening as well.